Welcome to the Human Reboot with me, Emma Last. We have uplifting, inspiring and diverse reboot stories from people sharing the courageous, honest, authentic and sometimes difficult life lessons. The Human Reboot will provide proven mentally flourishing formulas and practical tips to help you to live life to the full, giving you direction and hope. Make your mental fitness and well-being a daily priority. Learn to pause so that you can get clear and perform at your best. Switch off to switch on. It's time for your human reboot. Before we start this episode, it may contain conversations that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel that might apply to you, you can check the show notes for more details. Today's guest on The Human Reboot is Colette Stevenson. Colette is a graphic designer. She is a feminist, anti-racist, neurodivergent cis woman, a staunch LGBTQIA plus ally and a committed advocate for childhood and children's rights. At 45, she learned that she has ADHD, which we will talk a little bit more about. She lived in Japan for 15 years and she is now based in the UK with her husband and her son. And poverty is something that Colette you know, has lived live with and we will see that as part of her amazing story. So welcome, Colette. Hi, Emma. Thanks so much for inviting me onto this podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Well, we met, did, what, 2019? Probably, 19 yeah. or 20, probably yeah. on the cusp of yeah. the two, yeah. Definitely, yeah. So, yeah, so we were, we were in um, a group together, actually, around technology. Um, that was something that I was uh, trying to uh, work on in my business. So, yes, that's how we met met then. So, tell me a little bit more about what you do, Colette. Well, I design stuff. In short, um, I make. I tell if I'm talking to kids, I tell them that I make pictures for a living, and they think that I've got the dream job. But basically, that's what I do. I work predominantly with colours and brands who are looking to uh, have a brand refresh or look to um, improve their online profile through the use of colours and visuals. So I do a lot of colour work and a lot of font work. I also design logos for people. But most recently, I have gone into Instagram design, which is a very new field, but a very exciting field. And it's generating a lot of interest. Yeah, it looks amazing what you're doing, really does. And it's come, I think, very much from a place when we discussed it, from a place of, you know, simplicity and making things easy for for people, which I absolutely love. Yes. Um, So it it started mostly because um, of my ADHD. I can't plan, right? The way it affects me is I really struggle to plan. I really struggle to think ahead. I really struggle to uh, stay consistent because I always like the new thing, right? But as a graphic designer, I also needed to showcase my work. And um, my I work predominantly with educators and early years educators who spend a lot of time on Instagram. So <laughs> I thought I needed to, uh, you know, do something with Instagram. But I hated it, in all honesty, because I felt like I needed to post all the time. And then I had to have this certain look. And it either looked, my Instagram feed either looked like everybody else or it looked like a mess. And I couldn't get this happy, this this happy place where my Instagram feed looked like me, but also looked consistent without me having to do a whole load of planning. I didn't want to have, you know, the first post being white and the next post being pink or something like that. I wanted something a bit different. Um, So I developed a system that worked for me and meant that I don't have to plan, you know, weeks in ahead. I can just post as and when I feel like it, but have a feed that is standout. (gasps) So exciting. (laughs) And that's been launched. Um, Yeah. So, well, I I did it for myself. And then uh, in March this year, I went into partnership with Helen Pritchard and Postgrid was founded at the end of March, and um, I think we're um, onboarding our first clients now. Oh, exciting. So we're on the Human Reboot podcast. So please would you share with me 
a time when you have navigated challenge or change and as we call it your reboot story yeah I uh <laughs> this is it's kind of a big story for me personally so I think for a lot of people we don't necessarily always have one reboot story we might have multiple um and and sometimes our reboot stories are interlinked and they help us uh with our next reboot um so this morning before this podcast I thought oh my goodness I don't know if I can talk about being rebooted because I feel as though I still have to reboot to get to the next level so I don't think that it's a journey that's finished but when I look back on my life there was a significant time in my life which I am often reluctant and in fact very reluctant to talk about where I experienced quite a large trauma quite a large trauma. I was a teenager and I didn't know how to process it. And I didn't want anybody to know. There was a lot of shame around it. Uh, I, I was sexually assaulted by four guys on a crowded street and nobody helped. Uh, somebody, I remember, stopped to take pictures. And um, I didn't really know how to process that at all. I had no clue how to process it. And this is going back, you know, almost 30 years now, I suppose. Is it 30? No, no, 20 years. I got some rubbish at math. <laughs> can, we, can we edit that out? <laughs> I'm rubbish at math. But anyway, it goes back a long time and I didn't know how to process it. I didn't know how to talk about it. And back then there was no such thing as PTSD. And I knew about the concept of, you know, don't blame yourself. It's not your fault. But that didn't feel real to me at all because my reality and my experience felt like it was totally deserved and totally my fault. And so I spent quite a lot of years uh, not recovering from that. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. I, I lived with that trauma for quite some time um, and ended up in not very healthy relationships. I had recurring inc incidences of um, assault and abuse after the fact. And it became kind of normal for me to live that way of life. And at one, one bizarre point, I remember I was in a relationship with someone and I lived with him. And one day he brought home one of his girlfriends and I was in the kitchen baking scones while they made out in the living room. And when I look back on that moment, I think, who was I? Like, who, who was that person who felt so small, who felt so lost, who felt so insignificant and undeserving that it's such a long time ago, right? It's such a long time ago. And, and it's funny to know that something that can be so long ago can still play a part in hurting us today. It, 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 it's still there because that sense of undeserving and that sense of worthlessness carries through on our journey. So every time we go through some kind of reboot, every time we go through some kind of discomfort, every time we go through some kind of growth, those feelings are still really present. Those feelings of, I don't deserve this are still there. Excuse me while my voice shakes. I'm just hiding. <laughs> I'm hiding behind the mic because I think I'm worse than you. <laughs> you just take your time, Claire, because I'm just truly and utterly honoured that you have chosen to share this with me. So I, 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 it's, it's a funny thing. I feel like I'm at the stage in my life where I have to own those dark times and I have to talk about them openly because when I heard other people talking about their stories, I felt like I had permission to find healing and move through it myself, if that makes sense. And I know, and it's a funny thing, it, it, it hurts to know as well, that there are people right now who are going through really, really hard times and they don't see a way out right? That, that they don't, that, because when you're in it, even though you might know academically it's not forever, even though you know that you might be able to do something different, you don't know how, you, you don't know how to move from that point of being. And especially when being mistreated or being undervalued or, or being less than worthy in other people's eyes is normal. It, when that feels normal, you can't 
imagine ever stepping out of it or doing something different at all. And that's where I was. Uh, you know, I, I smoked a lot of marijuana in those days as well. Um, I think partly to numb everything, um, which it did, but it also numbed, I think, my escape route. I didn't see it at that time in that way. I just I just wanted to be stoned constantly. Um, it's not something I ever talk about publicly. <laughs> so this is a, I'm actually going a bit pink looking back. That was my life. I lived in a basement getting stoned with a guy who brought home girlfriends. Not, not, not a great place. And then at some point during that time, I had this dream and it sounds like I'm, I'm not very woo woo, right? I used to be, I used to be very woo woo and very spiritualist and very reliant on the spirits to save me. Right. I thought that that would be my way out and and bizarrely it was a dream that moved me forward but now I don't actually subscribe to it so much it's a funny thing but I had this dream that I was walking through an an ancient village a Viking village and as I walked through the village on either side of me there were these huge dark black cliffs and the houses were all deserted there was nobody there just me walking through this kind of uh, narrow village with houses on either side and this big dark cliff and then I got to the end of the village and right in front of me was another huge big dark cliff and I knew I couldn't go back I don't know why but I knew I couldn't go back and then I was stuck against this cliff and I didn't know where to go in the dream. And then I looked up and right at the top, there was this sliver of sky. And in the dream, I knew that I just needed to get to the top of the cliff and I'd be free. And I woke up that morning and I thought, I've got to make a change. And I, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't really a thought in words. It was a feeling or a hope or a, a, a realization that I didn't have to stay stuck surrounded by this darkness, I could get to the top of the cliff. It was the first time I saw the light. <laughs> For the, I'm just, I'm doing little inverted commas there, but I did, I saw, I saw the light. And I'm not saying it was easy to get from that point to changing things, but that was, I suppose, the beginning of a reboot that I didn't know was about to happen. But I started working again. I started earning money again. I started trying to save my money. I knew that I needed to leave. So I left the country entirely and went to Japan, thinking I would go there for a year and improve my resume and come back and be a teacher. But I ended up being there for 15 years and running schools and opening businesses. And I met my husband there and I had my my life just transformed. So that really, in, in a nutshell, is that part of my reboot story. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And then you decided to come back to the UK, didn't you, after that time in, in Japan? Yeah, yeah. And it, it's it's a funny, there's a lot of, you know, when you can look at things with hindsight, you can actually see how things jigsaw together, but in the moment, you don't know what's happening. But at the time that we came back, um, my son you know, it was my son at the time was three and it was it was clear that he was autistic and he needed support. And my Japanese language skills were not strong enough to be able to advocate for him or to be able to talk to the teachers about what kind of support was needed. So that was a big motivator. My dad died um, and I at the time was unable to get back to the UK. It's complicated, but I, I wasn't able to. And so that was quite hard. Um, and so when I did come back to the UK to visit, Um, I was in the state of grief and a state of needing very desperately to change things. And I'd I'd talked to my husband and we knew that our time was running out in Japan and we needed to leave. And somehow on my visit home, um, we ended up buying a house without planning it, really. It it was kind of a mistake because my husband's not British, so he didn't have a visa. And I didn't, I just didn't return to Japan at that time. So I didn't say goodbye to my friends. I didn't pack up my belongings. I just came to the UK with my son, left my husband behind and bought a house, which seemed, to be honest at the time, like really, <laughs> really practical. But <laughs> looking back, it wasn't at all. Because what happened was, because I hadn't been a British resident for a long time and qualify for any support at all, I couldn't open a bank account. I um, Obviously, my husband didn't have a visa and we had, to, we had a cafe at the time in Japan, so we had to close up that cafe so our income dried up. I sponsored my husband's visa in Japan, but couldn't sponsor it in the UK because I didn't earn enough money 
because, of course, at that time, I was a lone parent of a three-year-old with additional needs, so I couldn't work. And in the UK, there is a rule where you have to be earning a minimum of 18,000, I think 18,600 to be able to sponsor a spousal visa, which obviously disproportionately affects a lot of mothers of young children, uh, meaning their spouses can't live with them and children are without their fathers. So there was that. And then my husband then, of course, was of no fixed abode because he, I couldn't sponsor his visa not being in Japan. So he went to Canada and we had about, I think it was 18 months of two years where we had zero income. And we'd been lucky that we'd been able to buy our house, but our house was in a state of disrepair. Our savings dried up and we had no income and we didn't qualify for any financial assistance at all. And at one point, I'd got a letter from the Department of Work and Pensions telling me to move back to Japan. One day I'm going to find that and, you know, hold it up and say, this is shameful. Um, My mental health deteriorated rapidly um, and I did not know how to feed my child, which brings a lot of shame, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. There was just so much wrapped up in that. And I I called a crisis line and I was like, you've got to help me. I don't know how to feed my son. And they they were like, I'm sorry, you don't qualify for income support, so we can't help you. Right. So I was like, what kind of country is this? Was was my thought. And I, I was very negative, right? It was, it was very, ne- obviously it was a negative time. So I was feeling very negative. Like, what kind of country is this where the more you need support, the less access you have to it was, was my feeling. And, um, and it, it, again, my, my mental health just crashed. It nosedived rapidly and I didn't know. I felt stuck again. And, and to me, it felt like when I was in the UK, my life was dark. Because I then associated all this pain and all this darkness with when I lived in the UK before I left for Japan. I left to Japan and my life flourished and I came back to the UK. And within a year, I was back in this dark space where I felt trapped with no no way out. But in, in my mind, because of what had gone on before, I also knew that that sky existed. So even though things were really dark, And even though things felt really hopeless, and even though I didn't know what was going to happen or how it was going to unfold, I knew that it wasn't forever and things would improve. So I had this mantra, this ongoing mantra, it's not forever, it's not forever, it's not forever, things change, things change. And just keep, take one step forward, just keep moving through it one step forward and things will change. And they did. And that was three years ago. And things have changed. Um, and it's got nothing to do with, you know, any any help from being in the UK. But I also realise now that the darkness is not related to geography at all. It's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's just something that we go through journeys in our lives and we make decisions and they have a knock-on effect. Or sometimes our circumstances impact our mental well-being or impact our families or impact our lives in ways that we can't control. And there's so much that we can't control. But then there are things that we we do have some control over and it's what we do next. And that's basically what I held on to that whole time for 2017, 2018, 2019. <laughs> it was like, it was what I could do next that mattered, not what had happened before. Just little steps forward. So you also just shared with us before about your son having additional needs. So you know, those needs haven't necessarily gone away and you, you know, needed to make money. So how did you, how did you kind of resolve that situation and start Um, steps forward? That's a good question. Um, In some ways I was fortunate because I had been self-employed for many years and I'd run businesses in the past. So to some you know, different degrees of failure and success. But because I'd already had that experience, the next logical step for me was to try and generate an income for myself. Um, the, the struggle that I had was that in the UK, I didn't know anybody. I had no friends. I had family, but I didn't actually know anybody. I didn't really know where to start. My skill set didn't feel like it transferred over here because I didn't have the certificates. That's the other thing in the UK. Everything you want to do, 
needs some kind of certificate or gold stamp or seal of approval to say that you're you're eligible to do a particular job. And so your 20 years of my 20 years of experience in whatever I'd been working in counted for nothing. I couldn't even get an interview at Starbucks to work part-time despite having run my own cafe. I mean, it just it just seems bizarre to me looking back. It was very bizarre. But anyway, that's a different topic. There was a lot of obstacles <laughs> and I had to um find a way to generate an income. So I thought, well, okay, I can I can make stuff because I used to make flyers and brochures and posters and logos for my own businesses. Um, so I can make stuff. So that was one thing I thought I could do. So at that time, my cousin said, have you heard of Helen Pritchard? And I was like, no, never heard of her. Right. And my cousin's like, oh, I met her at some event thing. Um, she does this LinkedIn training stuff. You should, you should have a look. So there was a five day free challenge coming up. So I did that five day challenge and was like, right. Okay. I'll use LinkedIn and try and get customers. So I went on LinkedIn and started advertising that I could help educators Built, make resources. And I got a client and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is magic. Right. So uh, that was kind of my, my first kind of set of income or from a, from a, you know, it was a good contract I got from LinkedIn from that. And, and I used that money I, to feed my son for the next couple of months, but also to then invest in my business so that I could take payments more easily online. So I bought a shopping cart system uh, from that. And I felt really bad because I felt like, you know, my son needs clothes and I'm putting this money into a shopping cart system. But then I also knew that if I needed to make more money, I needed to make it easier for people to buy from me. So that was kind of that part of the journey. And also my mom was in a ladies chorus or a women's chorus and they needed help with their social media. So they hired me to make their social media posts for them. So I did that for them, which was a nice, a, a nice little earner in the background. And thank you, mom, and your chorus for that. And that gave me a lot of confidence. I redesigned their logo, um, which made me realize that it was something that I could do for other people as well, not just for me. And bit by bit, I started getting clients in that way. And then I pivoted for some reason. I panicked, I think. I panicked. I was like, oh, my God, I'm not good enough. That that sense of like, not being deserving and not being worthy and not being good enough, like, stopped me in my tracks. I start, as soon as I started getting regular clients, I was like, oh... I'm not good enough. I'm going to, I'm going to fail. I'm going to flunk. So I stopped and pivoted and started offering parent support (laughs) because one of the things that got me through that very, very dark time was that I'd worked with kids for so many years. The one thing that wasn't majorly impacted was my ability to support my son with his additional needs because I knew I knew enough about his struggles I knew enough about what his triggers were I knew enough about his emotional responses to be able to support him and I thought other parents going through a hard time don't have that background and they might need that support so in in my mind the whole time is other people going through these dark times how are they coping right so that was my my thing so I pivoted and started offering parent support um, and then I spent, had to, so then of course my income dropped again and I had to spend another six months building up a new, a new client base. And then as those clients started to come in, <laughs> it pivoted back. <laughs> I just kept changing and flipping and flopping again, that sense of I'm not good enough. I don't deserve this. And it just kept, and I will admit it still is there a lot. It kept coming back. So I pivoted again and went back into design, uh, focusing on kind of mascot design, helping educators, and actually staying in that kind of child-centered role that I am very passionate about anyway. So it integrated that that early years experience that I loved. Um, it integrated the work that I did with parents and it integrated the work that I did with design. And so that was what led me to now I suppose and we can um I think we can hear somebody having some fun in the background somewhere there um, yeah. I know when we've talked you have a very happy family life I think mm. no despite you know any challenges that yeah you- no we have a lovely family life it's a very relaxed very fortunate it's a very relaxed happy home uh during lockdown it was bliss because we all enjoy being with each other. Um, so about 
was it about just over 12 months ago that you discovered that you had ADHD? Yes. Yeah, that was, um, yeah, that was transformational. So when I realized that my son was uh, developing in his own way, um, I, you know, did a lot of reading and I'd already worked a lot with children, uh, with autistic children, uh, children with ADHD. I'd, I'd, I'd done, I used to do respite care. And so I worked a lot with children with different needs, different abilities, um, differently abled children. So it was quite easy for me to recognize in my son that he was not following a typical developmental path. So I did a lot more reading, but what I did differently and, and, that I, than I did when I was an educator or a caregiver was that I, and I'm ashamed now looking back, was that I got in touch with and I joined groups of adults, autistic adults and neurodivergent adults, right? Now, beforehand, all my knowledge came from other educators or medical professionals or books that explained what um, these conditions were, right? So my knowledge was flawed, it didn't come from people with lived experience. It came from people who pathologized these things. So I entered these groups really to find out how I could best support my son. And in one group, I think it was called Actually Autistic or I can't remember what it was called. I was like, oh my God, I feel like I belong in here, right? So there were a lot of stories and there were a lot of crossovers and there was a lot of chat and I felt the sense of belonging that I had never experienced in, in real life. So I was like, maybe I'm autistic was, was, was my first thought. Maybe I'm autistic. So I started engaging with people and talking to people. And yes, there was a lot of similarities, but there, there were quite, there were enough differences for me to think, well, I'm not autistic. So for example, I, I am actually quite good at reading people generally and knowing, you know, what, what's going on in that way. It's not something I've had to work hard with. Um, and I never got that. There was a lot of language that was used that um, people often referred to that they grew up fe feeling a bit like they were an alien or like in a, growing up in a different culture. I never really got that. But I always felt that I was outside of everybody else. So there was a lot of, in these groups, there was a lot of talk where I was like, well, it's similar, but it's not the same, right? Was, was this overriding thing. And I chatted to different people and they were like, well, have you looked at ADHD? Now in my head, ADHD was like naughty boys bouncing off the walls. And I'm thinking, well, that's not me. I was not that kind of kid. So I dismissed it as you do when people say, why don't you look at this? And it's really good advice. And you're like, nah. <laughs> So I swiped it away and ignored it uh, because I, for me, I was like, well, my son's autistic, so I must be autistic too. That was, and I kind of clung to this, I think because I wanted to be able to connect with my son. I wanted my son to grow up feeling, you know, taking ownership of his neurodivergence and feeling proud of the way he thought and the way he processed the world and not have it, not have the, the way that he sees the world pathologized in some way. Um, so I thought, well, the easiest way to do that is for us to connect. Like if I'm the same, then you know, obviously we can connect and we can talk about it. But the, over the years, I realized that actually I'm just, the, the way he processed the world and the way he interacted with his toys or the way he he learned to speak, um, it was very clear that we, we were not the same in, in, in many, many ways. And then I was doing a LinkedIn Live Obviously, so this is all. There's a whole load of crossover here, isn't there? There's a whole crossover. So there I am trying to grow my business and trying to do my different things. And I start not alive. I just did a recorded video on LinkedIn. So I did a video on LinkedIn, and somebody sent me a message saying, "I've been watching you on LinkedIn. Do you have ADHD?" And I was like, "No, no. I might be autistic though." And she said, "No, you, you're not autistic." She said, "I think you need to look into ADHD." She said, "The way you move and the way you talk is very reminiscent. Do you want to get on a call?" So I got on a call with this woman, and she's God. I wish I could remember her name. This isn't. This is a thing, right? <laughs> it's like a, an ongoing, recurring pattern, right? I just don't remember names. I got on a call with her and I talked to her and I was like, oh yeah. And she made some good points and she explained to me a little bit more about ADHD and how it's different in women and girls. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll look into it. And then I sat on it again for a few more months, but I told my husband and he said, you know what? It makes sense. So I started looking into it and reading about it. And then I read Janet Murray's blog 
about when she'd been diagnosed at 45 with ADHD and she'd listed all these different points. And I was like, oh my God. And so I joined ADHD groups and I spoke to women who were diagnosed with ADHD. And when I talk about the connection that I felt when I joined these autistic groups, it was that magnified by a hundred thousand. I didn't have to explain myself anymore. I didn't have to justify anything. I didn't have to, I didn't have to do anything. It was okay. The fact that I have no clue how to start a task. I don't know if somebody gives me a task. I I don't know how to start it. Fine if I'm plopped into the middle of it, but I don't know how to start it. And I don't know how to finish it either, actually. But I'm fine in the middle. And I, I, I love new things. I love, so I love the idea of new things and creating new things and having new ideas. But if you say to me, like, actually today I have to call HMRC, for example, I will not know how to make that phone call, even though it's the easiest thing in the world, right? It's I can't do it. It's really hard. There's like an, an invisible barrier. I, I wrote a post about this the other day, actually. An invisible barrier to simple tasks, laundry, dishes, tidying my desk, um, whatever it is, it, it's it's impossible. And when I ran, I used to run like uh, it was 11 schools, 12 schools in Japan. And I thought it was perfectly normal to, to spend my whole weekend planning my schedule and moving things around and organizing things so that I could do my job. Well, apparently neurotypical people can just do their job without spending the whole weekend planning how to do their job. And I, I, I didn't know that other people don't have to jump through hoops to do certain tasks. But the plus side is that because I start in the middle and I pull strands in rather than starting from the edge and working my way in, it means that I process information in a really different way, which helps me massively in the work that I do. So, and knowing that has helped me massively. So it was probably around a year ago that I realized conclusively that I'm going to say I am ADHD because it's the way my brain is. It's not a condition that I have. It's just, it's just an is. So I am ADHD. And when I discovered that and realized that I was not alone and realized that I was not flawed and there wasn't something wrong with me, it made this massive, massive leap in terms of that sense of not feeling like I deserve anything, it, it, it stepped me up, it gave me perspective, and it's helped me, it's helped me, it's just helped me understand what I can do and also set limits on what I can't and just say, I can't do that and not feel bad about it. So that whole realisation of this is what I'm good at, these are my strengths, these are you know, my brain works in a different way and that's okay. Is like, it's just, it's like, it's almost like, I don't know, a key to a treasure chest has been opened and collects ideas are starting to flow out and you can ask for the support that you need on the things that perhaps you don't think that you're, you find as easy or you might not be as good at because actually what you've been creating in the last 12 months or so is just, it's phenomenal, really is such a transformation. Yeah, I think the last 12 months have have been, I don't think there's a word for it, to be honest. I think I was set free. I'm not going to lie. I still, I'm going through a lot of discomfort right now <laughs> and a lot of, you know, those old kind of blocks and those old kind of ideas of, of not being worthy and not feeling like I deserve great things are, are coming back and I'm having to work constantly to remind myself that actually if I I was talking to anybody else so of course you're worthy what are you talking about everybody is deserving of good things everybody including me and I think that's that's the the hard thing to to come to but the other thing I struggle with is praise right and again I think it's related to that sense of you know when when in kind I suppose in your formative adult years when 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 you are abused or mistreated or uh, I'm going to I, I was going to say made to feel but I don't think people set out to make people feel a certain way they just don't respect you uh, but when you when you spend your formative adult years being trained I suppose to be less than other people it's really hard to then 
accept that other people might see value in you. And so people will say, oh, wow, your work's good or wow, your work's great or wow, that's a brilliant idea. And you feel it doesn't feel real. And and I get I, I find myself shrinking away when when people say good things. And that's something I want to work on. I read actually coincidentally, I read a really good quote this morning. And I now have to remember it. It was um, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking less about yourself or something. Oh, I have to find it. it it's about the idea where you don't have to you don't have to reduce who you are to be humble or to, to, to experience humility, but you just need to think about others and realize that they are equally worthy, which, which to me, that's the easiest bit. The easiest bit is thinking that everybody is equally worthy of success. The bit that I struggle with is realizing that I too am worthy. I think, I mean, one of the things um, we do in the human reboot is we, we actually, and it's only really one of the times that within the whole program, we very much are focusing on the future because that's the difference really between sort of coaching and mentoring and therapy, isn't it? Therapy often goes into your past um, and coaching and mentoring goes forward. But in the human reboot, there is one part where we really start to kind of look at actually how we've become who we are and where some of our strengths have come from. Because often from adversity, you know, we gain we gain real strengths and we, you know, sometimes there's some kind of deep-rooted beliefs like, you know, you've got that maybe you're not worthy enough or, you know, certain things, you know, when people have been perhaps conditioned in a certain way or or perhaps bullied in their life. It's not that they're in a place where potentially they need therapy, but it, it's more that they they could have therapy with on it. But it but it is also trying to kind of pull out those strengths that they those things that that have made helped them to become who they are. And we look at those things and actually start to celebrate some of those. Actually, when that rubbish thing happened to me this is what came out of it and this is why and it's it's almost like pulling resilience pulling resilience out and celebrating that resilience so yeah I do absolutely get where you're coming from but that might be um one exercise that might be quite helpful for you to really kind of think about actually how those things that have shaped who you are and it might be and and those strengths that you've got and where they have come from because sometimes actually when you revisit that and look at it and go "Mm, yeah this is really good and often if I was to say to you Colette what are your strengths and this is some of the things so actually I had a coaching session this week and um with one of my groups and I was saying so tell me what are your strengths and it's really interesting because people go oh no I can't do that I haven't got any I can't do that. Can't do it. <laughs> so, you know, because we don't like talking about, it's just, we sometimes find it really difficult. So what I'm saying is it does, what you're talking about really does make sense and you're really not on your own. And, you know, we can really pull out some of those like key, you know, amazing. I mean, it's, it's amazing what you've overcome. And I know you're probably feeling really weird because I'm now like being slightly gushing about you, but but also so accepting, sometimes accepting a compliment. And this is sometimes something that we have to learn to do as well. It's just take it as a gift, take it as a gift and accept it. Pause, don't say anything, just accept it and breathe when someone's giving you a compliment. Um, so yeah, anyway... Let's move on to the next section then. So you've talked to us and you've said, I am ADHD, which switching off for someone with ADHD can be more complex for people that, you know, people that are, aren't, you know, neurodivergent. So how do you switch off so that you can switch on and perform at your best? Oh my God. Uh, I don't know if I switch off actually I'll, I'll honestly it's not something I've ever mastered I think 
perhaps had I uh, understood about ADHD, you know, more than a year ago or, you know, more than five years ago, maybe I would have developed some strategies, but it's still quite new to me in understanding what's been going on and why perhaps I struggle to sleep or why my, my, my sleep is very busy right? I'm busy in my sleep. Uh, apparently, according to my husband, I'm very talkative. <laughs> I move around a lot, even when I'm sleeping. So my sleep is very busy. Um, so I don't know if I do switch off, but something that I have started doing recently is self-hypnosis. And I, I, I'll be honest, I was, I was skeptical, right? I was skeptical. And people say you can't hit, you can't be hypnotized if you don't believe it, right? But I was skeptical and yet it still held power. Now, somebody sent, sent me a link to, I'll find it and you can put it in the show notes if you want, but I've got no idea what it's called now. And it was a self-hypnosis YouTube video. And she still tried this, it might help. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's horrible. I'm always skeptical, right? As well. I'm, I'm very resistant to um, I suppose support. I don't know why. Anyway, that's just another issue, isn't it? But she'd sent me this video and I thought, well, you know, just take it, accept it, see what it, see what it's got. So even though I'm skeptical about things, I'm still happy to try them. So I opened this video up and I, I was like, yeah, okay, let's see how this goes. Now, one of the reasons I was skeptical is because if I do meditation, I, I come from a theater background, right? So I used to do, we used to do meditation at university. It was just part of our course. I never felt relaxed ever. You know, I was always just busy. Like I, I wanted, I, I found it very uncomfortable doing meditation. So I, was, I felt the same going into self-hypnosis. It was this, oh, you know, breathe deeply. And, uh, but I tried it and I did the visualization stuff and I, I did the whole walking down the steps thing in this video. And I, I followed the process and I followed the steps. And the next day I woke up and felt amazing. And I felt like I'd slept. And I was like, oh my God, I think that worked. So I did it again the next night. And again, I slept. And I was, I was like, I said, said to my husband, I said, oh my God, I'm in love with self-hypnosis. So I started taking it more seriously. And I started kind of brainwashing myself to think certain things, right? Or believe certain things. And uh, that was perhaps the beginning of March, end of end of February, beginning of March time this year. And um, I'd signed up to do the sales call and I had to, on day three, it was like, you know, ask questions. Now, usually, although I'm, I'm quite, you know, verbose online and I, I talk a lot online, I'm also quite shy and socially awkward. So in these kinds of training courses, I'm always nervous about asking a question because I always think my question's going to be a bit rubbish or it's not going to be good enough or it's going to be like, really obvious. But I went into the sales call having done about a week and a half of this self-hypnosis thing. And I wanted to ask about how I could sell my Instagram grid, right? So that was my question. I was like, I've got this thing, but I don't know how I can sell it to people or what price I should sell it at was basically my question. And Helen Pritchard was in there and I was really nervous. And I was the second person to ask the question. And I was like, oh my God. And I was like all shaky and nervous. But because of this self-hypnosis thing, I believed I could ask that question and that my question had value in a way that I'd never believed before. So I asked that question. And a week later, I was in business with Helen Pritchard. <laughs> so, so yeah, I don't necessarily switch off, but um, I do think that self-hypnosis um, is quite a powerful way to control my alertness, if that makes sense, or to manage the, the way my thoughts are ordered. Yeah, so. that's great. Well, I, I mean, I find it really interesting because people, a lot of people think, well, oh, you know, I don't, I don't want to be hypnotized because it's, you know, they might view it as, you know, the kind of the showmanship really that you see on TV, but kind of the way that, you know, I've kind of been told about it really is that it's just, it's very sort of deep breathing, deep relaxation. It's almost like that sort of potentially that slightly level under, you know, a, a, a kind of a greater level of relaxation, really, than, than, than meditation, for example. So it's, it's I think the difference between, for me, the difference between that and meditation was that is in meditation, it, it's kind of, it's quite passive. You're following the instructions and you relax your body and you relax your toes and you, you relax your mind. 
Um, that's the bit that I've always struggled with. <laughs> like, relax my mind. What does that even mean? Um, but with self-hypnosis, you are consciously thinking about what you're doing and what you're saying and what you're thinking. So it's a very, it means you don't switch off. You stay on, which puts me to sleep. <laughs> it's, it's magic. <laughs> it helps you switch off. <laughs> magic. It's magic. It's been magic for me anyway. But yeah, I don't really switch off. So, okay, well, I'll have to keep an eye on that then and make sure you are. Um, <laughs> don't want you burning out. Um, okay, so well, normally within the re- Human Reboot, we always ask you, what is your personally flourishing formula for life? So do you live by any kind of mantras or mental fitness or anything really, any key learns that you've had that you could share with our listeners that might help them on their journey? Yes, I think I do, but I've never really thought about it before. Um, and it's to just keep going. That's it. It's there's, it's not fancy. It's not wise. It's not, you know, life-changing or transformational, except that it is. It's to just keep going. When things are great, don't get complacent. When things aren't great, um, keep going. Um, Even if you can only take like a tiny step or even if to keep going is to take a rest or to take a break or to pull away from something, Um, but to keep going uh, in some way. And you don't have to know. I, I don't, I think there's a lot of pressure on people to, know what the big goals are, right? But your goals can shift and change. And sometimes we just have to keep going in order to be able to see our goals. Sometimes we have to walk along the street to get to the bend in the road to be able to see what our goal actually is. Before we get to that bend, we're we're stuck and we don't know where we're going. And there's turnoffs and distractions and all kinds of stuff. But I think we just keep going. Because like you said earlier in the podcast, things will change things do change always change they always change and and we can have an impact on what kind of change is gonna happen we we can impact the change that we want to see we can't change circumstances so actually um i was once in a massive earthquake in japan the big one in 2011 where there was a huge tsunami and the nuclear power plant meltdown and things And I was under the table with two kids holding their hands and the earthquake was six minutes long and I got motion sickness. I mean, it it was big, life-changing, hugely memorable incident, right? And I was under that table holding onto these two kids' hands and I was thinking, you know, if this building comes down, this table is not going to save us, right? So in that moment, I couldn't change a thing other than what I was focused on. And I focused on those kids and I focused on making sure that they felt secure and safe, like they weren't alone. And I focused on making sure that we got through those six minutes to the best that I could with each other. That was the only thing we could do is just wait it out and choose what to focus on. So I, and and that stays with me today as well. That idea that we, we can't necessarily change what's happening around us, but we can change where we choose to focus. Yeah. And and also it's focusing on what you can control and what you can't control, isn't it? You know, it's like, you know, not, not focusing on the things that, that you can't control. And actually that's a huge part of sometimes managing all the things that are going on in our lives is sometimes separating those things out. Um, you know, to to help us to kind of work out what we do want to focus on and what we can focus on. Because sometimes there are, you know, there are waves of life that we just, we have to surf and, and we have to find a way to move forward. So are there any books or um, communities or people um, that have inspired you along your journey? This is my huge weak point. I, I, I don't remember. I, 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 it sounds terrible, but I, I don't, so many people, books, quotes, videos, movies have impacted me and influenced me in my life. I can't separate them from one another. Um, they, I don't know if that's part of the way that my brain is wired, but I don't retain people's names. I don't retain where information came from, but I 
jigsaw the information away and siphon it away and it integrates with other pieces of information. Um, What I will say is that entering Helen Pritchard's world a few years ago changed my life and got me out of poverty. Um, So obviously I am a huge fan. Um, So there's that, but also um, there's been so many people online. I mean, Vicky Jakes um, in her community has helped me in the last few years um, massively. Um, just so many people, big and small. I mean, I I don't. I could say I read a book, right? But I never get past the second chapter. <laughs> so I read the first couple of chapters of a book, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's brilliant. So I read um, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. I'm like, oh, this is a brilliant book, and then I never finished it. Um, You're not the only one, but do you yeah. know, it's absolutely all right to take bits of information from different places and formulate them in your brain however you want to and you know or however you can and because actually all helps contribute to who you are doesn't it it does I mean I think you know if people say you know who who influences you I just say well whoever you choose it can be anyone my mom influences me my dad influenced me my sister my younger sister is a massive influence on me my husband my son my son is a great influence right now he's seven and like you know beautifully arrogant he's like the best at everything in the world he's the fastest in the world and the strongest in the world and you know it's a wonderful thing to be seven and brilliant at everything I find that inspiring oh and um well he's obviously taking after his mum then (laughs) 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 when I get her accepting some compliments can you see (laughs) (laughs) We'll work on that just while we're even on the podcast. But anyway, never mind. Right. So thank you so much um, for joining me today. Colette, if anyone wants to find out more about what you do, what's the best way of them contacting you? Um, probably LinkedIn. To be, I should say Instagram, actually. I should say, I'm on, <laughs> I should say, I should say, follow me on Instagram, but you can get in touch with me on LinkedIn. And is that, um, that's Colette Stevenson. It's under your... Yeah, Colette Stevenson. Yeah, I, if, in fact, if you just do the whole LinkedIn slash in slash Colette Stevenson, I'm I'm the I'm the one. I'm Facebook. You can find me on Facebook as well. I'm everywhere except Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> with me on that one. Uh, yeah, so, uh, uh, yeah. So we'll pop Colette's details in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me today, Colette, and for sharing your story so vulnerably. Thank you for inviting me actually it's been lovely thank you for listening to the human reboot podcast i'm emma last and if you've enjoyed this episode please leave me a five-star podcast review and visit the human where you can find downloadable free resources sign up to my mailing list or connect with me on social so that's the human let's switch off so we can switch on. It's time for your human reboot.